I'm Janet Jacobson. I'm the director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, and I want to welcome all of you to this evening's event. Tonight, we are here to discuss trans politics, and we're very happy to have uh, Dean Spade here with us again. Dean was here um, four or five years ago, but this is a student-initiated event. As some of you know, we have a small fund to develop events that are initiated and requested by our students. And this one was brought to us by Anna Steffens, who is one of the co-presidents of Q. Where is she? There she is. Um, and there was just so much enthusiasm, as the crowd this evening shows, for having Dean back that we were more than um, enthusiastic about issuing um, an invitation. Uh, BCRW regularly presents um, lectures and uh, panel discussions on trans issues. Um, and, uh, but when the newsletter goes out announcing these events, we regularly get questions about why we take up trans issues at a women's college or at a feminist um, center like the Barnard Center for Research on Women. And so I would like to take just a moment by way of introduction to talk about how we at BCRW understand trans issues to be central to our mission, both in its feminist version. The center was founded in 1971. It is, as far as we know, the first of its kind. So very early on in what is called the second wave of feminism, and also to an understanding of a broad, the broader mission of a women's college. Now, the relationship between gender and a women's college might seem to be relatively straightforward, and you'll forgive the pun, um, <laughs> in that a women's college is marked by the gender binary. Barnard says that it is a college for women, and that, that category is simply taken to be um, self-evident, or it has been until recently. But, of course, one of the things that feminism has learned is that gender is anything but straightforward. As Anne Snittow reported in an essay called My Gender Diary, which is on her early experiences in feminism, and the essay was published um, well over 20 years ago. You can find it. Uh, it's been republished several times. You can find it in books like Conflicts in Feminism, um, edited by our colleague across the street, Mariana Hirsch. Um, and she re relates an incident in which she and a friend were walking out of their CR group. Remember those? Um, and she commented that she was glad that feminism had come along so that she no longer had to be a woman. And she made this comment to a very close friend of hers, someone who she knew well, but that her friend was nonetheless shocked. Her friend was glad that feminism had come along as well, but it was because she felt she finally could be a woman. Paradoxically, um, um, and so this is, this is the question that we try to raise and have tried to raise through the Barnard Center for Research on Women, which is the, what are the ways in which feminism challenges the restrictive norms that make gender such that one could be either and, either or, and or, glad to not have to be a woman anymore and to be a woman. Um, and one of the things that, that we argue at BCRW, and especially about a space like Barnard College, is that even to create a space to be a woman requires work, work like feminism that in fact challenges what it means to be a woman. In other words, feminism does the work that allowed Snittow to not be a woman and to allow some other people who desire to be so to be women, but in a new way, in ways that are not traditionally feminine. The very project of a women's college, although this is not always acknowledged, has also historically been to challenge traditional notions of femininity um, and to create a college for women in, its be in the beginning, and we would argue in its ongoing project, and this is, this is I think, where some of the difference lies, um, that to create a college for women required 
the challenging of what it means to be a woman. And to create a college for women was to change what it meant to be a woman, to undo in certain ways what was called true womanhood. So we should not be surprised that some students are attracted to women's college so that they can undo what it means to be a woman. This vision of feminism, which exists in tension with a feminism focused on being a woman, and importantly, both types are represented among our students here at Barnard. The need to challenge gender norms has led to a variety of feminisms, many of which have been taken up by the students who participate in the Barnard Center for Research on Women. Feminism that connects challenges to gender norms, to challenges to the norms of race, ethnicity, class, sexuality, and nation that make for true womanhood for the womanhood that is presumed to be straightforwardly associated with women's colleges. In other words, challenging gender norms is a feminist project, and it is also a project that challenges the boundaries of feminism itself. These are the challenges that trans politics provides, and I would argue these are the challenges that BCRW has, when at its best, taken up over the course of its now um, over three-decade history. In this way, the type of trans politics that Dean Spade will be talking about tonight, we would argue, are part of the work that BCRW does, not just in the current moment, but over the course of its history. In other words, this is our tradition. This is what we were made to do. BCRW is a place at Barnard that is intentionally created to take on controversial issues, and we hope that it will continue to be so, because without controversy and without change, then the project of social change itself becomes stagnant. Without an engagement specifically with trans politics, BCRW would fail in both its feminist mission and in its mission at a women's college, in its mission of creating a world of social justice that challenges the restriction of the norms that make for women. We are grateful to Dean for being here this evening to share a vision of trans politics and its possibility. We are grateful to Dean for being willing to contribute to the projects of Barnard and the Center. Five years after graduating from Barnard College, Dean Spade founded the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, a nonprofit law collective that provides free legal services to transgender, intersex, and gender nonconforming people who are low income and or people of color. SRLP also engages in litigation, policy reform, and public education on issues affecting these communities and operates on a collective governance model, prioritizing the governance and leadership of trans, intersex, and gender variant people of color. While working at SRLP, Dean taught classes focusing on sexual orientation, gender identity, and law at Columbia and Harvard Law Schools. Dean is currently an assistant professor of law at Seattle University Law School, and we're very happy, but we miss you here in New York. Prior to joining the faculty of Seattle University, Dean was a Williams Institute Law Teaching Fellow at UCLA Law School and at Harvard Law School. Dean Spade. It's so weird to come here when I once went to school here and like I remember picking my housing in this room. It's really weird. It was really stressful. Um, um, thank you so much. And thank you so much to the center and everybody who made this happen. It's been really fun to get to work with people. I once worked at the center and uh, or I like hung out there and got paid. I don't know if I worked very much, but it's nice to get to give something back after all that I got from it. Um, so I was thinking a little bit about um, when I went to school here um, and what those years were like and what we were kind of like working on and thinking about at that time. Um, so it was, Clinton was president. Um, people were talking a lot about gays in the military, like they are today. Um, 
there was a really enormous sort of mobilization going on at that moment of the myth of the welfare queen, which I'm sure many of you remember, um, that resulted in the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act, right, which eviscerated welfare benefits. Um, it was the time of the contract with America, um, which was about, of course, ending welfare benefits, pushing abstinence-only health education and things like, you know, family caps um, in welfare that came out of some idea that, like, poor people were, like, people who had too many babies, right? We still have this idea around. Um, and it was also the time of like the 96 welfare, ref uh, sorry, immigration reforms, right? So it drastically changed um, how immigration works. Um, and it was a complicated time to be a young, totally unsophisticated country bumpkin, like I was, straight from the backwoods of Virginia, trying to figure out what queer politics was, right? Because um, it was also the beginning of the gay marriage push. It was the time of the Hawaii case, um, you guys might remember. Um, and it was a... It, I felt there was, I was in a context where there was a strong message that if you wanted to have queer politics, like that's what queer politics would be. And I promptly like went to work on those issues. I was a huge gay marriage um, advocate. <laughs> this is being taped, but you might as well know now. Um, um, I still feel humiliated when I see my former professors from Barnard. <laughs> um, things I said in their classes, but whatever. Um, I had some figuring things out. Um, so. At the time, it was like, you know, that's what gay politics is, and this is what you do. And I thought already that that was, you know, a somewhat um, narrow message, but I think that message has gotten more, even stronger, right? That, like, if you are going to be pro-queer in any way, then it has to be, like, pro-marriage. That is, like, the thing. It's one and the same. Um, and at the time, I was beginning to sort of, like, have some disillusionment, right, that the gay and lesbian organizations I worked for and interned for and cared about didn't seem to care about immigration reform or welfare reform, right? They weren't out about those issues. They didn't have talking points about them. Those weren't being phrased as gay issues. Um, there was not a critique that I had been learning when I was teaching myself feminism about, like, the family structure and, like, you know, feminist understanding of course of family structures, none of that was coming up. And I was, I, I experienced a lot of confusion, right? I was having like splits around my own class alliances as somebody who had been on welfare and feeling like, why don't the gay people see that this is our issue? Um, and uh, it was really here at Barnard that I found the critical tools to try to describe some of those contradictions that I was experiencing. And also through, at the same time, living in New York City where I was able to be a part of all these different kinds of like street activism, right, like not nonprofit activism. Um, that was a real counter to the professional interning I was doing um, at places like Lambda and GLAD. Um, and that were, the, this sort of like ad hoc street activism was emerging out of formations that were like related to ACT UP, right? Um, most notably, I was heavily involved in Sex Panic and then in the Fuck the Mayor Collective. Um, and we were trying to really like articulate a politics that drew together an understanding of the attacks on public space, um, like in the piers and the parks here, right? They were closing the Christopher Street piers at the time. There was like closing down all the sex business in Times Square. There was a notion that the city belonged to like Disney and like rich people and families and not to like queers and sex workers and freaks. Um, we were articulating resistance to the attacks on public sex and um, bars, and you guys might know there used to be like amazing back rooms and all the gay bars downtown, and they were all closed, and it's very heartbreaking. Um, um, and, um, and also linking that to like attacks on immigrant workers in the city. At the time, Giuliani was targeting taxi cab drivers, and then he was targeting street vendors, and it was like people were seeing the connections. Um, and there was also sort of these HIV surveillance panics happening. You all might remember like the new Sean Williams panic, right? These people, the AIDS monsters infecting people and sort of the way in which this mobilization of fear around people with HIV was leading to all of these surveillance calls. 
um, and welfare reform was happening, and all of this was happening for a lot of us queers in the context of this really deep disappointment with a solidifying gay establishment that was really hell-bent on like assimilation, domesticity, corporate sponsorship, you know, militarism, and everything else that for many of us felt like it evis eviscerated the category of queer, right? Um, so that's, that's my nostalgia. <laughs> Those were when I was a wayward youth. Um, and what I did about that was I made a lot of stickers and I stuck them on the subway things, um, which is very important work, perhaps the most effective work I've ever done. Um, I'm still torn. Um, and also to say that I think that if I had known the word then, if I, had, if I knew what it was, that I might have used it to talk about the kind of critical engagement we were aiming for, I might have said that we were trying to address queer politics in a neoliberal context, right? Like, so nothing has really changed with what I'm thinking about. Um, so I don't really know what neoliberal means um, <laughs> because I think that it's a really slippery term that like means different things to different people and maybe I go back and forth about whether or not it's even useful, right? Like whether or not it's even the best way to just try to say what I'm trying to say about like how things are right now and how they've been getting this way for 30 years or so. Um, but when I think about that word, like what I'm trying to say, just to give you a sense in case so we can have a shared definition for a moment as loosely, um, is that it's a word that tries to describe a set of trends that have defined the last few decades of politics, both policy trends and trends in like the symbolic and affective realms. Um, you know, one way that this is talked about is that a lot of what neoliberalism is about or what it impacts is like an overall upward distribution of wealth. That's like a really good like basic thing to think about it, right? That's something that we can see over the last 30 years or 35 years we can see, right? Like an increasing wealth gap period, right? And of course correlated strongly to a increasing racialized wealth gap, right? So um, that's like very clear like both within the US and globally. Um, and that includes in within it uh, trends that are about changes in relationships between workers and owners, right? So loss of, like, less people are in labor unions. Labor unions have less capacity to strike and do other things that would give them bargaining power. We see stagnating wages. We see more and more people, um, their relationship to the labor market is through a contingent workforce, right? Like working as temps, right? Which we're all supposed to feel very, like, freed by because it makes us entrepreneurs of ourselves, right? So this, again, neoliberalism is associated with this, like, slipperiness between having um, sort of being sold um, a bill of goods that's in the name of your own freedom. Like you are now free to not have that like unseemly relationship with your boss where they give you health benefits that just ties you down. Um, um, and similarly, this, uh, you know, this, this push towards trade liberalization or what some people call globalization, um, you know, gl right, sort of on the global level, um, the shifting relationship between, again, workers and owners and, and around sort of how capital moves and, um, and whether or not workers can expect certain kinds of um, protection and whether or not there's protection of the environment in relationship to industry and those kinds of things, right, with, again, um, decreased bargaining power for workers being one of the um, results. Um, simultaneously, neoliberalism is marked by this dismantling of welfare programs, right, both within the U.S. and then also the enforcement of that um, in debtor countries as a condition of their debt. Um, and a rhetoric of personal responsibility, right, that's huge in neoliberalism, this idea that, like, um, you know, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act, right? Like, everyone's got an equal chance here. This is a meritocracy. Be responsible for yourself. A lack of collectivity, right? No sense of responsibility between people or for sort of who's falling to the bottom of a um, vicious economy. Um, neoliberalism also marked by privatization, right? Another example of this, this is often sold as diversification, right? I was, I was, uh, 
uh, someone was talking to me about how they're they're trying to privatize the healthcare system in, in Sweden or privatize certain aspects of it, and they call it diversification of the system, right? Like you're diversifying your portfolio, right? Diversity, we like that, right? So there's sort of this kind of language that's typical in neoliberals and this like um, borrowing of the language of resistance movements and then having that sort of rearticulated in, um, in service of the you know existing arrangements. Um, and then I think more broadly, I think about neoliberalism increasingly as this like, cycle of abandonment and detention, right? So um, uh, marginalized communities and populations are abandoned, no more welfare, no more social services, no more you know, schools, no more whatever, right? We're gonna take these things out. We're gonna say that you need to be responsible for yourself and figure it out on your own and you know, everything's equal and fair now so it's your fault if you're on the bottom, that kind of thing, right? And then also the mining of those same communities for detention apparatuses related to the prison industrial complex and the um, immigration detention um, constant uh, growth, right? So the drug war and the war on terror being the two of the sort of sets of policy reforms and reframings that have really mobilized those detention opportunities. Um, and then an additional like sort of element that I associate with this like set of things happening in neoliberalism um, is the professionalization of social justice, right? So um, lots of people have talked about this. There's a really good book about it called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded that I hope you've all read. Um, and this, you know, the story about this is that, um, uh, you know, you have um, pretty significant emergent social justice formations in the 1960s and 70s specifically that are, um, having some effective, pretty disruptive demands. Um, and so there's a sort of response which is both the criminalization of those, um, of those organizations and formations, right? And so like the literal like assassination of their leaders and the um, imprisonment of others who are still in prison today. Um, and simultaneously, the emergence of a nonprofit sector where philanthropy offers, um, you know, so that's the stick, right? And the carrot is like money to do work that stabilizes the status quo, right? Money to do work that, that politically stabilizes the country. You know, services work that's not politicizing services, right? So it's not like when Black Panthers give you a free breakfast and you also talk about your what's all going on in your community. It's like when you get the free breakfast without the, without the politics, right? Um, so the sort of um, stabilizing services and stabilizing like law reform work that's about sort of putting a papering of equality over the state, right? And stabilizing the status quo. Um, so creating this, what people are calling the nonprofit industrial complex. So, so this is sort of an additional trend that's working here that I want us to kind of keep in mind. And then more broadly, a lot of people talk about neoliberalism just being associated with co-optation, right? Which is what I mentioned before. So an example of this is like um, in California where you know, we like to um, build zillions and zillions of prisons constantly um, and lock up like more people than most countries. Um, the, uh, a recent move um, on the part of the the state was this sort of like feminist prison idea, which was gender responsive prisons, right? So a, a new way to open the next prison is to sort of say these prisons are going to be better for women. We're going to open more women's prisons that where women can like live with their kids in the prison and all this stuff, right? But really, it's just more prison beds. So like that kind of that kind of really tricky co-optation, right? Where you like, you know, I care about women prisoners. I I hate that they can't be, you know, they're separated from their children, and there's all these human rights issues. Yet this is a way to open more prisons, right? So this kind of co-optation is like very indicative and I can give you other examples of that, um, of neoliberalism. So, I mean, that, what, what that is, like that's like just like neoliberalism is like this word that's like a tent full of ideas that are things that seem to be going on, they seem to be happening, um, you know, thoroughly in the US in different ways and then also elements of them happening all over the world. I don't know, I don't know if it's a useful concept, if it's not, that's okay. But those are some of the things I'm worried about. <laughs> um, so, 
there's this emerging scholarship and activism, I think, that's trying to think about neoliberalism and complicity and oppression. And specifically, I'm thinking about, you know, how we understand this in terms of queer and trans politics, right? Um, how um, queer and trans politics in a neoliberal context um, is often leading us to have aims that are actually to our detriment, right? That would be like the most simplistic way to say it. Um, so there's a few sort of elements to this critique that I've noticed, and I'm sure there's many that I'm missing. Um, so one element is how, is, is this, um, this notion that sort of rights talk, like the way we talk about claiming our rights to equality, um, actually establishes, establishes sort of who is a healthy, proper citizen um, and sort of norms around citizenship and, and ways of being, right? So, I mean, in the US it's really clear because we always have to talk about discrimination in terms of employment discrimination because the people we care about are productive workers, right? Like that's like that notion of like that's who, because everybody else who's not a productive worker is a drain on the state and they're, you know, trying to get something for free and we all work hard, right? There's all these, this rhetoric, right? And so the ways in which um, as advocates of in a certain kind of rights model, we often just take up that language like wholeheartedly, right? And, and sort of articulate that like the deserving proper people are these productive workers, right? And participate then in um, perhaps like, you know, um, this depiction of, of sort of people being drains and of people who can't work or don't want to work or aren't working as like properly being abandoned, right? Or enclosed in, in a detention facility, right? This sort of, that we could have become complicit in that personal responsibility idea and the abandonment that it includes. Um, Angela Harris has this uh, idea that she uses, I think is helpful. She talks about structural liberalism and what her definition of, I'm not gonna get this like in extreme detail, but the, the basics of what I get out of her structural liberalism idea is that um, it's, it's this idea about how there's a proper public sphere and a proper private sphere, right? And that um, those things are um, to be maintained, right? And so all the things that backs up, right? All the, all the sort of problematic things that that backs up about how, um, you know, you shouldn't be taken care of by the public and you should deal with that in your family and you should just all these sort of um, notions that are related to personal responsibility. Um, and then sort of within that, there's a notion that there's a set of people, most people are sort of self-governing and they should govern themselves in those spheres. And then there's these people who can't self-govern, right? That's always folded into that, right? There's a set of people who um, who need to be intervened on, right? Um, the, uh, the, the people who, you know, the, the family that foster, that the child services, you know, should go ahead and disrupt, should go ahead and divide, right? And that, those, those things are always coded in a racialized and classed way, right? And often a gendered way. I don't know if that structural liberalism idea is very helpful for what I was just articulating. To me, it makes sense, but <laughs> I'll move on and we can come back to it. Um, okay, so a second level of critique um, around um, this, these questions of sort of neoliberalism and complicity and oppression um, is this idea that some of the ways that we're engaging in this like rights talk and this sort of like claim of rights, like in a queer and trans perspective, like when we're engaging in, you know, the fight for an anti-discrimination law or, um, or the hate crimes laws, like those kinds of like typical legal interventions that, that seem to be kind of the hallmarks right now of, um, of what we consider um, these movements, um, uh, is this notion that they, um, they rely on an understanding of power that's incorrect and an understanding of oppression that's incorrect, right? That's, that's, and that leads us to have answers to it that are um, problematic. So one way that gets talked about in critical race theory is the notion of the perpetrator perspective, which is the idea that um, discrimination law um, conceptualizes um, 
uh, oppression or subordination as this thing that happens when a perpetrator and a victim are like they're in this dyad, right? And this person like denies this person a job because of like X, because they're trans or because they're a person of color or because they're a person with disability, right? And it's sort of this fundamentally very like individualizing narrative about how oppression operates. And that's the only kind of oppression that, there, that we can identify as a violation or as a problem. And everything else becomes naturalized, right? So what it does is it, it focuses on these sort of two individuals, this one with bad intent, who's like considered the forbidden category. They've thought about your gender or they've thought about your race when they've gone to hire you or when they've gone to offer you a, a housing opportunity or whatever, right? And then this person who's the victim of that. And what that, what that story about what oppression does is, is, is a few things, right? One, so it lets everybody else off the hook. If you haven't had that bad thought and denied someone an opportunity, you must not be participating in a racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic set of structures, right? Two, it, it naturalizes the status quo. So um, the problem is these aberrant individuals who have these bad thoughts, right? It's, there's not a way to think about structural inequality, right, and a structural disparity. Um, and, and one of the ways that Alan Freeman talks about this is that it makes it impossible to see conditions, right? There's so many conditions of disparity which can't be identified with like an individual with bad intention, right? So like the racial wealth divide in the US is based on hundreds of years of law and policy that established the connection to property with whiteness, right? So both like being able to hold property, being able to steal other people's property, being able to have other people be your property, right? Like all those things made whiteness connected to the category of property. And that was continued and continued through various um, sort of legal interventions, right? Like who could access social security benefits? White people. Who could access certain kinds of home ownership benefits? White people, right? There's, you know, who could access immigration during the Chinese exclusion era? White people, right? There's sort of all these things. European immigrants could come, Asian immigrants could not come, right? So if we can think about all of these vectors that would establish conditions of extreme economic disparity in the US, but you can only touch it if like that person didn't hire you because you're a person of color. Do you know what I mean? So like the ways in which, uh, um, conditions, right, of inequality become untouchable under a discrimination framework because of this being trapped in the perpetrator perspective, right? Um, so, you know, in, um, in the context of gay and lesbian and, and trans rights paradigms, right, we see this um, in terms of this quest um, for be, having our um, issues being named in law, right? So, like, if only we could get our, um, our, the name of my group in the hate crimes law, then I would be somehow equal, right? Um, if only I could get the name of my group in the anti-discrimination law, even though we know that, like, one, those laws don't seem to do a lot to change people's life chances because they have been in effect for lots of groups for years and years and years who still are experiencing this, like, massive wealth divide and racialization and, right, um, and, and, uh, and, you know, criminalization, et cetera. Um, so there's question about, like, sort of their impact on people's life chances or whether they more, like, paper over the state with, like, an era of equality, right? Like, oh, everything's fair now. We've declared it from on high. Yeah, everything's fair. It's equal. If you're doing poorly, it's your fault, right? Um, personal responsibility, you should really work harder. Um, and then additionally, you know, the, the concern about um, the ways in which they suggest that the economy is fundamentally fair, right? The only thing that's wrong with the economy is when I get fired for being trans, right? There's not, other, not anything else to be concerned about, about, you know, the things I mentioned around neoliberalism around workers and owners, right? Um, and I think some of this framing makes us, this perpetrator perspective framing makes us most interested in the places where we can go find a spot to name queer and trans people in the law, right? So we, where we can find an explicit um, instance of prohibition, right? So what's the, what's the queer people's problem with criminal law? It's not the drug war, it's, you know, which is what probably makes most queer and trans people be in prison because that's what most people are in prison for. It's sodomy laws. Do you know what I mean? Like that's, that, since that's the only spot where we seem to be named, that's the only one we can attach as an issue for our community, even though and the, on the ground, the drug war might be having a huge impact on queer and trans people's well-being, right, and our likelihood to be incarcerated. Um, or, um, 
I'll talk about marriage more in a moment. Mar marriage obviously comes, you know, comes to mind, um, <laughs> always. Um, so there's something about the ways in which the perpetrator perspective leads us to a set of legal reforms that um, are not concerned with distribution. They're concerned with how you get named by the law, right? They're not concerned with um, changing people's life chances on the ground, right? They're about sort of how the state has named or, or failed to name you as equal, right? Um, a third piece of this critique, I think, about, um, about neoliberalism and complicity is um, this question about how um, when we engage in this in really narrow rhetoric, especially reform rhetoric, we often are in danger of strengthening um, the very uh, relationships and arrangements that we may most want to um, you know, transform, right? So an example that comes to mind for me is I recently saw this um, presentation um, by the wonderful uh, students who had, and, and professors who had done this um, research about what's going on in the, um, in the detention center in Tacoma, Washington, near where I live. Um, and you know, horrible things are happening to the immigrants um, who are being taken into detention there, and everything about it is a horrendous nightmare. Um, their, the rhetoric of their presentation was, these people aren't criminals. They're here as part of civil detention. Even prisoners have better access to basic rights than them. So there was this way in which the rhetoric of the presentation set them up as being not like criminals, right? So rearticulated our investment in the criminal punishment system and its justness, articulated those people as having good rights, as if people who are in prison actually are having access to like meaningful rights to defend themselves, right? Which we know is not true. Um, um, and, and it was sort of this, it, I mean, it's a rhetoric that's so easy to fall into. It's like good citizen, bad citizen, right? Finding someone against whom to define yourself and say, look what they have. Even though, of course, like, even if in the detention center in Tacoma they started doing all the things they do for people in prison that they're not doing now, I don't think any of us would be satisfied with that. You know, I'm hoping we wouldn't, right? I'm hoping that wouldn't be enough. But just sort of um, watching the ways in which we have, when we have sort of very narrow strategy and we have an accompanying rhetoric that's narrow, we tend to strengthen, right, relations of inequity that we might be concerned about. Um, a third piece of this, obviously, a third critique is the ways in which we, be, we more broadly are concerned that reforms legitimize systems, right, and uphold them. So, right, prison reform is an example that I, I know Angela Davis was here recently, and she's written extensively about, right, that the history of prisons is the history of prison reform, right? Um, and so that uh, every time we re have reformed prisons, it seems we've expanded imprisonment in the U.S., right, and we've um, um, exacerbated the problem of sort of racialized detention, um, and that... Um, you know, sort of how can we think about, how can we be aware of that danger of reform, right? The danger that reform always includes legitimizing existing systems and, and ultimately strengthening their ability to um, undermine people's life chances. And then I think an additional limitation I hear about a lot um, in the neoliberal context is the question of how a politics of rep representation operates in our work, right? So you see this a lot with lawyers. It's like this whole question about like good plaintiffs, like trying to find the perfect plaintiff for your lawsuit, right? So like, you know, the Schroer case in New York, like it's like this woman, or not, sorry, no, it wasn't in New York, it was a DC case. Um, this woman, you know, she was an anti terrorism specialist who got a job at the Library of Congress researching terrorism and then she didn't, and she didn't fully get hired because she was trans, right? Like finding these people who will fit every other aspect of what we think a proper citizen is, usually in like an extreme form, right? Like anti terrorism in this political moment, right, is particularly valorized. Um, position, right, but we can see that all the time. Um, so the ways in which we come to engage in this politics of representation, that means that people who are incredibly unrepresentative of the most vulnerable people in our communities come to stand as the, um, 
the sort of uh, poster children of a politics that again is usually then limited to people just like them, right? Um, I, I just heard this story from Creating Change, you know that conference that happens once a year, just finished um, recently, and there was apparently an exchange on one of the panels about, um, it was one of the marriage panels, and it was one of the big marriage leaders, um, and he was talking about how it's so important that we have lobbyists who, you know, people in D.C. can understand and why it's just not time to send trans people to D.C. to talk to legislators, legislators yet. Um, he's obviously not trans. Um, and, um, and then someone in the audience um, uh, from a radical organization here in New York that's amazing was like, you know, um, you know, privilege, et cetera. And, <laughs> and, and he was like, he literally was like, according to the story, uh, it's like third hand, um, was like, um, some people's voices, and this person specifically talked about like sort of like um, the person used the example when they were talking about privilege of like you know um, you know for black people for trans people right they sort of said these set of things and he was like some people's voices should be raised in song and dance and other people's voices should be raised for lobbying he literally said that <laughs> anyway you know what I mean so it's like that is a true belief of people like who are at the center of leadership right who are our highest paid gay leaders with the most decision making power right there's sort of these true beliefs about sort of it's not time for those people yet, and we'll come back for you, and, you know, a proper, a proper you know, who, what's the right family to put on the front cover of the, the pamphlet this time, right? Um, I mean, you, you guys know this stuff, anyway. Um, and, and finally, I think the other sort of additional um, concern that I see coming up a lot is this co-optation concern, right, and how, like, feminist and anti-homophobic and anti-transphobic um, messages and ideas are being mobilized in the service of like existing militarizations and, and criminalizations, right? So the ways that we see, you know, a rhetoric around saving Afghan, saving Afghani women as a reason to bomb their country, right? Or the re when I was working at Harvard, we had a Zionist student group on campus that was, had this flyer about how they hang homosexuals in Iran and how we should bomb Iran. You know what I mean? I was like, as, as somebody who might get hanged, could I just ask you to please not <laughs> hand out that flyer? Um, you know, we're just like, come on, this is like ridiculous, right? But so this kind of typical stuff where we see, um, I think increasingly like an, in an inclusion of a feminist and anti-homophobic rhetoric in these campaigns that we might be very concerned about. And I think we see this a lot um, as well with the, um, and this has been well articulated by different scholars and activists, um, with the domestic violence movement and how it's been used to bolster policing and imprisonment, right? So like in Seattle, they're trying to build a new jail and we're fighting in different ways. And one of the things that, that I, I met with a woman who's like the head of planning the new jail, and one of the things she said to me was that we really need to have the jail because there's a mandatory like jail sentence associated with domestic violence in Washington state. Do you know what I mean? And she's right, like there is. And so how can Seattle not have a jail when they're, right? So like the ways in which our feminist activism has sometimes contributed, right, to a set of answers that are inappropriate in, to dealing with violence, right? There's nothing about prisons and jails that reduces violence, right? They increase them. They are places of rape, domestic violence, um, sexual assault, um, and, and other kinds of violence, right? And then also how um, that the, whatever we create as an articulation of our harms somehow gets absorbed by the criminal punishment system as something that it can punish through, right? So just some of these like concerning things that are very like hallmarks of neoliberalism, this kind of co-optation of, um, of, um, of different resistance practices into um, expansions of, of um, oppressive institutions. So it's interesting to think about this because trans politics has been really framed as a question of inclusion, right? I'm sure you guys have heard this, right? This like, can trans people be included? This is like the question of the day, right? Especially this gets talked about in terms of the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, right? Can tra trans people be in ENDA, right? Um, can trans people be in gay organizations? Have they changed their mission statements, right? Um, they have, but that's all. Um, and 
I wonder about whether we might want to refuse some of these invitations, even if they come, you know? Like, even if they start to invite us, if we might want to say, no thanks. Um, because in my view, they're invitations into this, like, right, monstrous death machine of abandonment and detention, right? It's like the only way to talk about it. So, and part of it is I think that it's a misunderstanding of power that leads to this dangerous complicity, right? So I call that misunderstanding. If we change laws, we'll change lives, right? Like that's, that's what I think the name of this misunderstanding of power is, right? I'll just give you one example, which is that I recently saw a talk given by somebody who was like a major litigator on the, um, in the gay marriage case in California that like led to Prop 8 or whatever. And they were talking about why they fought the case and how, you know, even though in California there was already a domestic violence law that gave same-sex couples all the same recognition as heterosexual married couples, it was important. It was the next clear step for human dignity because, you know, they looked at California because, you know, you got to ask yourself, like, why they spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on a lawsuit to change a law that's just about what this relationship is called, right? Is there nothing else to do in California for queer and trans people? Mm-hmm. And, his, and he really said in his speech, you know, we looked and there was already a hate crimes law on the books and there was already a gender identity and a non-discrimination law on the books. And so we were like, everything else has been done. So, you know, it made sense to pour millions and millions of dollars into this case, right? And so thinking about that, like, how could we come to believe that everything's been done because those laws have been passed? How could, how could we look at the state of queer and trans people in California, right? Of immigrants, of prisoners, right? Of all the people who are suffering without the basic necessities in California who are queer and trans and the foster kids who are being put in, um, you know, make you not gay and trans camps in Utah with California state money. I mean, like, I'm not kidding you. It's a horrible situation, right? We, there's plenty to work on in California short of um, the technicalities of what someone's relationship is called, right? And so how could we come to have this belief that what, what the law says about you is the sum total of our goals, right? That's in a critical race theory that's called formal legal equality, right? That all we're looking for is to be named in the same way, right? Um, and part of this is about this sort of top-down belief about power that, like, what they say about us is what matters, right? Like, I think that's, like, the other message in this, that it's about a visibility politics. It's about, like, changing hearts and minds. Like, these are some of the phrases that I think, like, come with it. Um, some idea that, like, the proper episode of Oprah or the proper New York Times article or the law will liberate us. It's, like, what's said about us that matters, right? And I want us to focus less on these notions of inclusion and visibility sort of liberating people, and more about ideas of regulation and norms and how those bids for inclusion narrowly adjust norms, often mobilizing and strengthening them as they articulate some kind of newfound justice and equality, right? So that, like, you know, thousands of years of critique of the marital relationship somehow out the window as long as they include, like, two lesbians or two gay men, right? Like, I'm cool with it now. No problem. Doesn't matter. Go ahead. Regulate me. Feels good. Um, So... I want to pay more attention to the, the, the distribution of life chances, like actual chances of life, right? What are life chances, right? Like the ability to get an education, the ability to have access to medicine, to um, housing, to have food, like life chances, chances at life, ch- things that will expand or shorten your lifespan. I want us to pay attention to the distribution of life chances through the production of structured security and insecurity for various populations, right? For anybody who cares, I'm talking about biopolitics and Foucault, but you don't have to know about that to understand this. Um, it's just part of it. Um, so a lot of what I, my interest in is in decentering law reform. I think that one of the big problems with like this queer and trans rights formation is that it takes law as its goal, right? Um, it takes law change as its goal. Um, I do think that there's a lot. I have a lot of interest in law reform targets. Um, 
that are that I think are about distribution of life chances, um, that are not about declarations of equality for de devoted workers and normal families, right? Um, I'm interested, I definitely think there are like lots of things to change in the law that are making people not live, right? So obviously, you know, in the context of trans law, um, a lot of us are doing a lot of work around access to ID, right, and all the ways in which trans people are like, caught up in legal nightmares around being able to have ID that says who you say you are so you can like, you know, deal with the cops or um, get a job or whatever it is you have to do, right? Um, I'm interested in the legal work people are doing to decriminalize things, to decarcerate trans people, right? Like that's a lot of times that requires legal work. Criminal defense, I can't imagine a more important law, law thing to do um, um, in our movement. Um, you know, um, I'm interested in work people are trying to do around sex segregated facilities, right? Uh, around sort of what happens to trans people in contexts like shelters and prisons and group homes, right? Where we face such an enormous amount of violence. Um, and other sort of on the ground experiences of trans people confronting the fact that we are deeply misunderstood by law, that there's an enormous amount of legal standards that harm us, right? And that shorten our lives. So I, I'm interested in that work, but that's different to me than the work of law that's about declaring me the same. Right? and how utterly little that does on the ground um, to change our life chances. Um, I just have to say, I think marriage is a, tricky, is a tricky one, or it appears tricky, it's not tricky at all, but it appears tricky because um, people say part of the reason we should fight for it is because there's like you know, 1,400 rights associated with it, right? So people would say it is an issue of distribution. You hear this, right? Um, and people say, um, you know, it's, a, it's about getting health care. If your partner has it through their job, then you can get it too. And it's about like your parental rights and stuff, stuff that totally matters. I think it, what's interesting about it is like, you know, yes, marriage is, is definitely an, an uh, institution that distributes life chances. There's no doubt about it. It's a distributive, um, it has a distributive function. Um, but the question, I think the questions that we ask about that should be guided by our vision of what we think proper distribution would be, not by our reaction. Right? So many people probably believe that it's appropriate that parental rights, immigration status, health insurance, and inheritance should be linked to family structure in an incentive system, right? Where, so that it would be like fair to tie wealth distribution and life chances to whether you organize your family and sexuality the way the state wants, right? And that expanding it to include some more people would make that system fair. Others of us, perhaps, um, might articulate a different vision, a vision where coercive norms of family structure that distribute benefits and recognition are abolished, right? Where we don't use marriage to distribute benefits and recognition and well-being, right? So we might want to change things like health insurance being something you have to have a certain kind of job to get, right? Um, or the, the ability to live securely on this land being tied to marrying someone who's been authorized to live here, right? Um, or that we might want to altogether question the idea of transferring wealth through inheritance that maintains our severe um, and deadly wealth gap, right? That's, we, I do think we should abolish inheritance, um, just in case you wondered. Um, but, um, you know, we can get into that. There's a question that maybe comes up for people around whether, like, inclusion is an incremental step on the way to something else, right? Like. This is something that's often been said about trans people, we'll come back for you later, we swear, um, right? Se Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act passed 2002 here in New York State. They decided that they could leave us for later. Um, so, you know, those ideas about whether or not it's an incremental step, whether or not like an, an emergent in inclusion opportunity is an incremental step are more or less believable in different contexts, right? Um, but I think to even ask that question, we have to do an analysis that's like, you know, measuring these options against our vision, first of all, right? So is your vision, what is your vision about family structure and should it determine whether or not you have health insurance, right? Like asking ourselves questions like that, should it determine whether or not we can immigrate, right? Like what's our actual vision of how we want that to look so that we can know whether or not we're going there, whether it's what's an incremental step towards, right? Second, you know, the question of whether or not the, the incremental reform 
strengthens the oppressive system, right, and what the cost of that might be. Are we making it harder for ourselves? Um, the organization Critical Resistance, someone from there told me once they asked themselves, in 50 years, are we gonna be glad we did this, right? And there's this thing about capitalism that makes us only wanna look like two to three minutes ahead. So I think it's really, really interesting to politically to allow ourselves to ask questions like in 50 years, of course you can never exactly know what you're gonna feel like in 50 years or if we're gonna feel anything. But, you know, we might wanna, you know, think about that's the sort of timelines. Um, we, I think we also have to ask ourselves, does this divide our community by leaving out vulnerable people, right? Like that's probably the first thing to ask, right? Does, is this incremental step conveniently eliminating the people who are easiest to eliminate in our community, right? That's always a, I think a, that should be a no-go. Um, and, and also does this incremental step invite backlashes that will and get and harm the most vulnerable? Because that's who backlashes always harm. Even though a lot of the rights people have been fighting for only benefit the very few, they usually harm, right, the people who are at the bottom, even though they benefit if they are one of the people at the very top. Um, so these questions require a politics that is more than just like a single issue identity politics, right? It's not a politics where you vote for pro-gay politicians because they have a good gay vote even though they like hate people on welfare and they want to build a prison, right? Gavin Newsom, right? Um, that instead, is, it's based on a, um, a commitment. I don't know if he wants to build a prison, but he probably does. But he de definitely hates people on welfare. Um, so it's instead, it's based on a commitment to an understanding that social justice doesn't trickle down, right? This is the thing that we always talk about. It doesn't trickle down. Um, and so we should center the experiences of the most vulnerable first. Like that's how we should determine our agenda, right? So if we deal with the problems that the rich are having with the economic crisis, right? Like, you know, they used to have $5 million, now they have three. Um, it's very stressful for them. Um, then um, there's no reason to believe that dealing with those problems will address the issues of the poor, right? Like, we can get, make sure they have their bonuses back, and we know that, like, the real hit of this crisis is still going to be felt by people at the lowest income, right? Um, similarly, if you address sort of the problems that white gay people who want to marry an immigrant have, you won't necessarily address the problems of two undocumented queer people who aren't partnered with a citizen, right? Although if you address the problems of undocumented queer people, you will address the problem of the person who wants to marry somebody who's an immigrant, right? Um, um, and if you address the issues of professional white lesbians and, and parental rights, you won't solve the problem of low-income mothers of color or imprisoned mothers who the child welfare system targets for separation from their families, right? But if you do the reverse, if, you, if we really upended the child welfare system and made it about retaining unification of families and communities, then inevitably that would have beneficial effects on rich white people who want to make sure that they can, you know, from their, um, their relationships and their parental rights, right? So, you know, it does trickle up, it doesn't trickle down. We know that, we, you know, we, we've had a while to figure that out since Reagan and before. So I'm curious about sort of how we come to still have this politics that's based on a notion of trickle down social justice, right? Um, I think that this is an exciting moment right now, right, in the US. It's, um, even though we're aware, you know, that many of Obama's policy stances are not sufficiently differ, different from um, the neoliberal trend, right, and that's, a sobering reality. We also see this election and the work that went into it have mobilized a lot of people and shifted a lot of people's experience of political possibility, right? People feel different about things, and, that's, and that matters, right? That there's a sense that people, a lot of people are feeling like they might take up some interventions that they might not have felt comfortable taking up under Bush. Um, I, think, I think I see that. I hope I could be making it up. Um, and this is a really important moment for reframings, I think, and for expanding our demands and our expectations, and for taking up a politics that, that attends to the distribution of life chances, right? Politics that's often called impossible or politically unviable, right? I think that that's what a lot of the politics I'm thinking about are considered. Um, 
I mean, I think it's a moment where we're seeing some really surprising and exciting signs of engagement and interventions that I don't think we would have expected, right? So there's like these factory takeovers and like takeovers of foreclosed properties. Like there's some interventions that are happening that really question some of the basic categories of like property and work and stuff that we have like been operating under for a good while. And even just the way the tactics are being discussed publicly is it's pretty surprising and different, right? Even though there's still plenty of the bad stuff. Um, And I think it's also interesting to see the way some of those tactics have been influenced by responses to neoliberalism in Latin America and strategies that have been used there. I think that's very inspiring to see people directly looking at um, locations where there's been such an, a, a long experience with neoliberal um, policy. Um, so I feel like people often dis discuss like sort of a need to expose contradictions, right? This is a typical way to critique capitalism, a need to expose contradictions um, of, of capitalist relations. Yet we also see that, you know, I think a lot of people have felt that some, some of the limitations of seeing that idea of exposing contradictions primarily as one based in like information exchange, right? Like we all knew the Iraq war was based on a lie, but it kept going, right? Um, or we all knew that it's bullshit about CEO pay, you know, but like it doesn't undo what already happened. Like why can't they take money back? You know, things like that. Um, so there's a, a sense of like how can we have those ex the exposing of contradictions not just be about visibility or assuming that like once we all know the truth, we'll be liberated, right? Um, but I think I'm interested in moments where those contradictions are taken up in action that's focused not only on identifying unjust dynamics that underlie wealth accumulation, but also expropriating, right, and actively redistributing those resources. I think that that's what some of this stuff that's emerging is about, and I think it's really interesting, and, 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 it, and there's a real moment for it, right? And I see demands coming from trans communities right now that really exceed recognition and inclusion and visibility. I hear that happening. You know, you have to listen in different places than in the most mainstream six mics in front of them places, right? Um, uh, I hear a really strong demand for prison abolition, which I hear echoed then throughout you know, all the many, many communities that are disproportionately harmed by imprisonment. Um, I hear a really strong call for an end to immigration enforcement. Um, I, hear, I hear a demand for full employment and a demand for full trans-inclusive universal health care. Um, and I also hear a continuing demand for the elimination of gender as a category of identity verification. Um, and these concepts, like even just entertaining these concepts, like a, like a country without prison, right? Like just entertaining the concepts like that or without immigration enforcement, those, those concepts require us to drastically reconsider the nation and citizenship itself, right? And you just, it's just some different stuff, right? Um, and these demands, I think, are inherently spaces of impossibility, right? And they make sense to me that they're coming from trans people who are impossible and living in an unsurvivable set of circumstances in structured insecurity in the current context, right? So... We are impossible people. My colleague Paisley, who's a um, brilliant uh, legal scholar and, and activist, has often says how, you know, it's like when trans people like walk up to an institution, it's like the computers break down and like the walls fall down. Like, you know, they can't understand us. It's like they're just like, ah, you can't exist, right? Um, and, and at the same time, we, we experience, right, when we go to try to talk to anybody about joining their fight, they're like, you're politically unviable, we can't work with you, right? So we're being told that we're politically unviable and we're in impossible. We're told that constantly by every single person who can talk. Um, and yet, I think that there is a space of possibility that exists in part because we are not yet included or recognized, right? Like that is what's interesting about that space, right? It's a space that we've seen recede in contexts like gay and lesbian rights formations where discourses of inclusion have made queer possibilities and interventions less and less disruptive and more and more compliant, right? Much to the disappointment of many of us queers. Um, 
right? So we see this shift from being about, you know, a politics of police riots to a politics of like, you know, hate crimes laws, right? And like that's a, that's, that shift is a, is a loss of some of that potential possibility of what queer politics might have meant or, or might have felt like it meant, right? When it was like an anti-police thing along with a bunch of other people who are articulating that like the police were colonizing um, force and, you know, communities of color and et cetera, et cetera, right? And enforcing gender norms and being hideous, right? Um, so I wonder about like a different direction for trans politics and you know, sometimes I feel really hopeful about this and other times I feel like we've already missed the boat. It's like so hard to identify these things when you're in this political moment. But I wonder about like a direction based on the recognition that our problems cannot be solved by inclusion in the neoliberal order, right? And that we have more to lose than to gain from that inclusion in terms of our very lifespans, right? Like we have like less life if we, if we choose that direction, right? Um, and what it might mean to strategize interventions that attend to our impossible political potential um, and, and those of other people, right, who are also failing to survive this order, right, if that's the place of solidarity for us. Um, a, a student recently approached me um, after I was on a panel about the new jail in Seattle, um, and she wanted to know what, like, the gay group at her campus could do to, like, take up trans rights. Like, they really want to ally around trans rights. They realize that they don't have trans people in their group. They're not doing anything trans. And I said, oh my God, it'd be so amazing if you guys got really involved in the fight to stop the new jail, you know? Um, you know, it's the Stonewall 40th anniversary is coming up. What if we had this huge queer student campaign all across Seattle or even all across Washington to stop this jail and it was tied to stopping the expansion that they've already planned of the immigrant detention center in Tacoma? And it was like all these queers were like, Stonewall is a police riot and like, we're not having this and queer and trans people are like totally harmed in these facilities and we don't believe in this method of dealing with any of the social problems that it's supposed to address, and this doesn't make anybody safe, and like queer and trans students like being loud about this and having, you know, I had this vision, you know, what if they did everything from, you know, um, making stickers to, um, <laughs> to, which is important, to, um, you know, getting signatures for the initiative we're trying to push to, you know, um, doing different kinds of direct action on the city council's meetings and all of that stuff and, um, and standing in front of bulldozers to stop the building and, you know, like we can imagine, right, and I can also imagine more intense things that I would talk to you about if we weren't being taped. Um, and so, right, what if we just imagine these like incredibly disruptive potential of queer people to stop imprisonment, right? I mean, these battles are going on here in, in New York. I'm sure many of you know that the critical resistance just succeeded in stopping the building of a, um, a jail in the Bronx, but there's still ongoing battles to go, right? Right. So, you know, wow, right? And I think that what she was really looking for was like what would be good talking points, trans inclusion talking points on their Prop 8 flyer. But, you know, this is exactly the point, right? How can we take the political mobilization around queer and trans oppressions, including its recent visibility, right? Even if that, as Jasbir Pura said, is about sort of like this white ascendancy, right? Even if we know that this white ascendant white gay politics is like so problematic, what if we just even could try to take some of the mobilization it's caused and some of the like disidentification and identification it's created, and and mobilize that around queer and trans oppressions and identities um, in a way that brings it to struggles that will actually save our lives, right? Like that's that's my question. I think there's a zillion questions that come after that about like what doesn't doesn't do that, and like what the limitations of our different strategies are, and all the different issues that come up in terms of organizational structure and alliance, but I think that's basically what I wanted to think about tonight with the group of people who I knew would be here, is just sort of like, um, how can we imagine a queer and trans politics, and I think many of us already are in our work, that attends to questions of life chances and refuses a politics of inclusion? <laughs>